The federal liberals are grappling with a two-headed monster that could stomp on their chances for a second mandate. Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. Sunny Ways has given into gloomy days for the federal liberals after former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould blew the whistle on the PMO for trying to pressure her into giving SNC-Lavalin a deferred prosecution agreement for its plying the Gaddafi regime with millions of dollars to secure infrastructure contracts in the North African country. It all came to light during the Arab Spring when several Middle East nations faced uprisings, including in Libya. For its part, SNC-Lavalin faces charges and a possible conviction could mean the company would be barred from bidding on federal government contracts for 10 years, which would be a serious blow to its bottom line. Its share prices have tumbled since the federal court rejected the company's request for a remediation agreement. SNC-Lavalin has maintained it should get a DPA because the people responsible for the fraud and bribery are gone, there's new leadership, and some new board members. And in a veiled threat, SNC-Lavalin points to the thousands of jobs it creates and the possibility of moving its head office out of Montreal. It was at this point that the PMO allegedly got involved with several meetings with the Attorney General to suggest that a DPA could save them a lot of headaches heading into the October election. This two-headed monster is what the Liberals now face. On the one side, the scent of political meddling in a justice case, and on the other, the view that SNC-Lavalin wants to get off its conviction much easier because it creates jobs, and in particular jobs in Montreal. And to add another twist to Trudeau's shorts is that the new CAQ government in Quebec is applying pressure to the feds to save SNC-Lavalin from a criminal trial. The world is watching as well. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development's Working Group on Bribery maintains Canada will face a Phase 4 OECD review and evaluation of Canada's compliance with the OECD Anti-Bribery Convention by experts from the two member countries and the Secretariat of the Working Group. Today on the Unpublished Cafe, we'll tear apart the issue of SNC-Lavalin and deferred prosecution agreements and whether there's any political tampering in a justice decision. Joining us later on the show, Jennifer Quaid. She's a Ph.D. and assistant professor of civil law at the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa. Also joining us will be Nelson Wiseman, professor of political science at the University of Toronto. And to get a look at how the scandal has impacted the Trudeau brand and liberal support, we'll chat with... Shachi Curl of the Angus Reid Institute. In my eyes, there are two issues here, political interference with a judicial decision and whether a chronic offender in SNC-Lavalin should get a deferred prosecution agreement. Personally, I say no, because it only offered contrition after it was caught. To get some more perspective on DPAs, I am pleased to be joined by Jennifer Quaid of the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa. And, and Jennifer, first off, can you give us a bit of history on DPAs? Sure. Um, so deferred prosecution agreements are uh, something that have been around for some time in the U.S. And um, the way they came about is a kind of an organic evolution from uh, the normal discretion that prosecutors have to settle criminal cases. Something that people may not know is up front is that uh, in, in Canada and in many jurisdictions with similar uh, criminal law systems, we we settle up to 90% of cases so uh, criminal cases are 
are the ones that go to trial are rare. Um, so against that backdrop, we, we acknowledge that prosecutors have a huge discretion to decide which cases should be brought to trial. You know, the basic standard is that you need to have a reasonable prospect of conviction. But in addition to that, you have to decide, is this the right case? Is it in the public interest? Can I uh, get to a resolution otherwise? So against that backdrop, DPAs are just another way of settling a case. It's just that uh, they have tended to um, been used in a particular set of circumstances. And in the U.S., it, they go back almost as far as the 30s in some cases, but really we talk about the, the widespread use of them starting in the 90s. And there it was mostly to do with economic crimes. And um, although it wasn't limited to corporations, they were often used for corporations. Uh, in the U.S., you can also offer them to individuals. But it's things like foreign corruption, antitrust offenses, um, money laundering, uh, you know, these kinds of economic crimes, plain vanilla fraud um, that are the, uh, the kind of arrangement where you'd use a deferred prosecution agreement. The idea is the following. You offer the prospect of avoiding a trial, but especially avoiding a conviction um, to the company if they do a certain number of things. And the number of things that they're going to do are going to look a lot like the kinds of things you would have asked for as a penalty. And so generally both sides consider it to be uh, a desirable outcome because, you know, the public interest is served by getting the fines, the restitution, uh, perhaps uh, imposing of compliance or corrective measures, and the company avoids the uh, the consequences of a conviction and the stigma associated, and they can also just settle their things and get, get going and move on. So that's the basic rationale. Um, the U.S. was the only country really that had it for a long time, and now we've seen in the last five years or so a bunch of other countries come online, notably the U.K. in 2014. Um, also, the Netherlands and France have things that are similar, although one has to be careful about comparing continental criminal law systems to uh, ones that are uh, have emerged from the British system, because in, in uh, continental systems, actually, corporate criminal liability in general, and just the mechanisms by which we hold corporations to account is, is different. They, they, basically, was no concept of corporate criminal liability in continental law until very recently. So, you know, you have to, we have to be a little bit careful about comparing there. The other place where they're about to enact something is in Australia. So it's relatively recent for most countries, uh, except for the U.S., but the U.S. makes a lot of headlines, so we tend to think they've been around for a long time. Now, what are the rules that determine whether a company can be granted a DPA? So now there you have to talk about in relation to a specific country. You can't sort of make generic generalizations, mm -hmm. which I think is one of the problems that's been happening of late. In Canada, uh, we have followed, by and large, the sort of classic uh, justifications and reasons why you would uh, seek out a DPA. And so the way we've structured our system, the prosecutor gets to make the decision initially whether a company should be invited to negotiate. So that's even whether they can come to the table. Forget about the deal that they might ultimately negotiate. Um, and so the factors that we consider are, uh, how did we find out about the conduct? Um, what have you done about it? <laughs> have individuals, uh, you know, particularly, you know, people who've actually engaged in the conduct, conduct have they been identified? Uh, is there a willingness to cooperate? Is there um, any sort of indication of other offenses sitting in the background that one should also come forward to? So these are the kinds of things we look at to see whether this is the kind of company that would be a good candidate for a DPA. Basically, DPAs are a form of corporate rehabilitation. We're saying 
this is the kind of company that can turn it around, so we should give them a second chance. And because there's going to be all these good things that happen if we give them a second chance, and that's where, of course, the argument about jobs comes in. But that's a consequence rather than a factor. But I think the number one thing that um, we should retain about DPAs is that the normal expectation is that the company comes forward. Creating this kind of arrangement is supposed to encourage self-policing and self-disclosure because these crimes are hard to detect uh, independently through police services. And they just, you know, they wouldn't even know where to look or how to find them. Usually, unless you have a whistleblower or you have the company come forward, we just don't know about them. So that's really a big factor that has to weigh here uh, is is coming forward. And then the second thing is is showing the willingness to admit that something wrong happened, uh, whether or not it's individuals or not. You know, the corporation has a role in giving people the opportunities or creating the space for that kind of thing to happen. And in addition with that recognition of responsibility for, you know, contributing to what went wrong, you have to be prepared to say, what are we going to do differently? How are we going to make sure this doesn't happen again? Jennifer Quaid is joining us on the Unpublished Cafe. She's with the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa as we discuss the SNC-Lavalin affair and in particular looking at uh, DPAs, and w- which uh, SNC-Lavalin is trying to get. Now, you mentioned that job creation is uh, is not enough of a reason to be granted one. One thing I, I'm, I'm kind of curious about uh, is, you know, this is an SNC's first, first uh, offense here. And in terms of the legislation, you know, when you're sort of seen as a chronic offender, does the the possibility of a DPA disappear for you? Well, now that's an excellent question. So, of course, the thing about DPAs, and especially because at least the first stage of, you know, being invited to negotiate one falls within the discretion of prosecutors, you know, these are not black and white kinds of scenarios. So a lot of the language being thrown around saying SNC qualifies for one or they deserve one or this kind of thing is, is, is missing fundamentally the point that at the end of the day, the prosecutor has to, in the same way they make this determination for any other criminal case they're going to settle, they have to say, is this a good case? Is it in the public interest? And they have to point to the criminal justice factors that are relevant there. You know, so I guess the way I've explained it in other contexts is to say, you know, if someone just comes forward and says, look, you know, it's going to be 10,000 job losses if we don't get a deal. Well, that's fine and dandy, but uh, what makes what makes you a good candidate? Why should we give you a deal? Because just saying that you need to avoid job losses is not really uh, enough to support uh, to support the argument. So one of the things that we look for are signs that you're going to change. Clearly, if you've already engaged in behavior before and don't seem to have moved on, changed the way you've done things, or you have the same problems occurring again, that will tend to color the assessment that the prosecutor makes about whether or not you're a good candidate. I mean, we all deserve a first chance, maybe a second chance, but the question is, you know, at what point do we say, well, it, this seems to be a persistent problem. You know, what's what's going on? Have you Have you not figured out where the where the problem is, are you not following through on what you've said are your com- is your commitment to compliance with the law? So those are things that will weigh against you. But it's hard to say that it would be a definitive, you know, slam the door. But, you know, the more often that it happens, the, the less strong a case you have to say, we really mean to change. Yeah. Now, in terms of the deferred prosecu- uh, prosecution agreement legislation, that came into effect in Canada with the, uh, the last budget. Uh, the opposition feels the Liberals snuck that past them, but do you see that as a fair characterization? 
I I can't speak for what the opposition party's perspective is. I can say from the perspective of the public, um, mm-hmm. a lot of the impetus behind getting this legislation through has not been headline stuff. So there, you know, already as far back as uh, the fall of 2015, which is you know shortly after SNC has the uh, charges brought against it for fraud and corruption in relation to Libya. There's um, there are some get-togethers with you know people who who uh, who know about these things and and have opinions you know legal experts and other people, but they're by invitation only and they're not widely um, publicized. Then there's you know a report that comes out in the fall of 2016 that's the product of one of these quiet roundtables that seems to point to oh we should really enact a DPA regime that's like the Brits. But that's just a, you know, it's just a report published by a think tank, um, nevertheless financially supported by SNC and a few others. Um, but uh, what's interesting is that there was a consultation, and I put that in quotation marks, in the fall of 2017. The uh, the difficulty with calling that a, a true consultation is that it was very generic. It was, it was firstly very uh, rapidly put together, and so those who didn't know about it really, you blinked in the the comment period was almost over. It was only about eight weeks long, and they announced it in the fall of twenty of twenty seventeen in September. But that consultation was: how can we reinforce the corporate accountability toolkit? So, should we do a DPA? Are there other things we should do? And at the same time, they were also consulting on changes to the integrity regime, which um, some will um, remember is this. Uh, government procurement policy that establishes the criteria for qualifying as an as a bidder on uh, government contracts, and which includes, among other things, a provision that says you cannot bid if you're convicted of a certain number of offenses. So they were consulting on both things at the same time. There wasn't a proposal on the table that said, here's what we'd like to enact. Could you give us comments? So when it was put into the budget bill in part 20 of a 500-page bill, um, certainly it would have been a surprise to anyone who wasn't actually reading all the way to the end. And it was pretty clear to me <clears throat> when I noticed it and when I then heard the the um, House Finance Committee uh, hearing, which only lasted 25 minutes on this part of the, the budget bill, that they were annoyed and surprised. But not just the opposition parties, also the government uh, MPs. And I think it was partly that they just felt that they were the wrong committee to look at this. They weren't going to have enough time. They didn't know what questions to ask. And they were they were a little bit taken aback at, at putting a criminal justice, what was a criminal justice reform provision, into a budget bill. They asked repeatedly of the poor representative of the Department of Justice who was there, you know, why was this put in a budget bill? And that's a political question to which that you know, mm-hmm. career lawyer was yeah. not able to yeah. answer. But you could see pretty clearly that this this was not intended to be subject to a lot of scrutiny. It was intended to get passed quickly and um, and and so that it would be available. But I think the unfortunate cost of that, in addition to this whole you know scandal now, where people say, "Hey, how did this happen?" and and you know it's it's really blown up um, in the liberals' faces. I think unfortunately the the, the more significant thing is that we're stuck now. Uh, at least until there's a willingness to do something about it, with a regime that is not as good as it could have been. They've, they've, they've done some things which, uh, or they've made some choices about how they've structured it, and they've done things that are different from the Brits, for example, and different from the Americans, but we don't really know why, and I, I remain convinced that there, we're going to see some other problems uh, going forward because it wasn't thought through, and it could have been. That's what's so unfortunate. Jennifer, I want to thank you for joining us. 
Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Jennifer Quaid is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa. The world is watching Canada with a close eye after the revelations came to light about the PMO pushing the Attorney General to grant a DPA to SNC-Lavalin. The Organization for Economic and Development Cooperation has announced an investigation into the affair. And to talk more about the political fallout from this, I am pleased to be joined by Nelson Wiseman, political science professor from the University of Toronto. And Nelson, how damaging politically is this issue to the Liberals right now? Well, it's it's really damaged uh, the Prime Minister, I'd say, more than the Liberal brand, although that uh, brand has also taken a, something of a beating. I think a lot of observers would be surprised how their numbers have still held up in the polls, and I wouldn't be surprised if they bounce back more or less to where they were before the scandal broke. It just depends how things unfold. If we don't have any new developments, uh, then people have short memory spans. That applies to the media as well. And uh, they can bounce back. On the other hand, if we keep seeing new things come out, like Jody Wilson-Raybould appearing again, other witnesses like Jessica Prince, uh, Katie Telford, people who, have, um, who the opposition parties want to hear from, uh, we might get a, a, more, uh, a fuller picture and one that uh, keeps this story bubbling in the news. Which do you think has more impact on on the Liberals or in the government? The possibility of political interference in a judicial decision or being cozy and defending a chronic offender in a company like SNC-Lavalin? Uh, I don't know if it's so much being cozy and a defender of a chronic... Um, they are chronic offenders. There's no doubt about that. Uh, I understand uh, the position of the government. And what I'm trying to understand is what's the uh, what's the difference if there's a trial or if there isn't a trial? If there's a trial, I assume they'll be found guilty. And you can't put a company in jail. You can only put people in jail. Uh, some have gone to jail. Others have been prosecuted, most not successfully, because uh, because the prosecution service hasn't managed to pull off timely trials. So... They're going to end up being fined one way or the other, uh, whether because that's all you can really do to a company. Um, they have a completely new management, com- completely new board, so there isn't anybody you can finger who's there now. Uh, where it will hurt is internationally, and it'll hurt the go- co- uh, company because if the government maintains the regulation that you can't do any business with a a company that's been convicted for 10 years domestically, that'll hurt SNC-Lavalin here, although I think most of their business is offshore because uh, about 80% of their employees are offshore. But it'll also cripple them in terms of um, competing for international contracts in Africa, in Asia, Latin America, wherever, because their competitors will point out to the client, hey, do you want to deal with a company which is prohibited from doing business in its own country and has been criminally convicted? So that would be a a severe reputational blow. Uh, The the shares of the company would probably continue to to decline in value. They have quite a bit already. And... uh, 
and it could be subject to foreign takeover. The company could be moved out of the country. And 9,000 people, almost 9,000 people in the country who are completely innocent, they have nothing to do with the bribery or the corruption, the fraud, might be out of work. Although I suspect most will get work in other engineering and construction firms. From from your perspective, how have the opposition parties made any political hay with this scandal, if at all? Oh, yeah, they've made hay, and they want to keep making more hay. Yeah. But the liberals are frustrating them. I mean, I think this argument that a liberal MP who proposed the adjournment motion the other day, well, we've already heard from Jody Wilson-Raybould. We don't have to hear from her any again. Well, why did you hear from Michael Wernick twice? I also don't understand her position, nor the, the Liberal Party's position. Why does she want to stay in the Liberal Party? And uh, hey, and if you're staying in the Liberal Party, wouldn't you be an ideal person to have on the Justice Committee? After all, she was Minister of Justice. Yeah. You know, so uh, it's a tricky dance for the party because she says she wants to stay in the party. They don't want to throw her out. Her local association has nominated her, although that's sort of irrelevant because unless the prime minister signs your nomination papers, he can't run carrying the liberal banner. Uh, so I don't know what, and and I don't understand this whole thing about solicitor client privilege. I've never heard of it before in Canadian government or politics. I understand cabinet confidentiality, cabinet solidarity, cabinet secrecy, but a lot of what went on didn't go on in cabinet. And when I hear from some She's intimating, well, I can't talk about what happened once I became Minister of of Veterans Affairs. Gee, I heard Gerald Butts talking about all kinds of things, including the portfolios she was offered and turned down. So it seems to me, you know, I just don't, don't get, and not all the pieces fit together for me, for anybody. But the liberals clearly are, are trying to cover up as much as they can. Nelson Wiseman is joining us on the Unpublished Cafe, political science professor from the University of Toronto, as we talk about SNC-Lavalin and the impact this affair is having politically on the Liberals. And, you know, when I look at this, and when I first, I used to, I covered the Arab Spring uh, as a lead reporter, and the one thing that bothered me about what SNC-Lavalin, when that came out that they were involved with the Gaddafis, is, is the, the image of, our image, Canada's image, you know, playing footsie here with with uh, a brutal, ruth, ruthless dictator. How do you think this affair is affecting Canada's image on the world stage? Well, uh, let me just uh, let's break that down in two. In terms of dealing with um, unsavory regimes like the Gaddafi regime, a regime that Paul Martin went over and spent uh, an evening in a tent with uh, Muammar Gaddafi and was shaking his hands. Look, the only way you can do business in these countries is essentially through uh, corrupt officials. I see Neil McDonald from the um, from CBC has written about his experience in Libya. He had to pay for everything. It, you know, there's mm-hmm. this term there called backsheesh. It's not even seen, and you, you know the term, it's not even seen as anything that's corrupt. It's just the normal course of business. So other uh, large companies have done these kinds of things too. I'm not letting out off SNC-Lavalin. I'm just talking about the reality of those political cultures and values, and they're different from ours. 
just as uh, Saudi Arabia's is different, and yet we're still selling them these armored vehicles. Mm-hmm. What would the is, what would the impact be of of the OECD investigation? Well, look, let's not exaggerate this. This is when we say the OECD, we're talking about one small unit in the OECD that that mentions this. It's like talking about um, the Human Rights Commission of the uh, of the UN Assembly uh, constantly criticizing Canada for how it treats Aboriginals. And so what has the impact been? Has Canada changed its position? Is, has it really had much influence? You know, it, mm-hmm. it shows up. The, it, it's in the interest of the media to find the one guy who runs that shop. I'm not being critical of what they do. That's his job, and he should be pursuing it. But your other side of your question was the image of Canada and the international perception. I'll tell you, Ed, uh, 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 My area of expertise is Canadian government and politics. I get called by a lot of Canadian media. This is an example. But I have to say, since February the 7th, I've been inundated with uh, international media as well. The Times of London, uh, La Teresa in Chile. Uh, I'm doing an interview with a... um, with a Chinese television network this week. And when I say Chinese, I don't mean Canadian Chinese, I mean Beijing. Mm -hmm. I've been called by the Wall Street Journal, by Radio Sputnik in Moscow, by NBC, by CNBC, by Al Jazeera, by uh, an outlet in Seoul, by three different French outlets, two TVs, companies, France 24, France 2, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Hey, that's unusual. You only get calls like that for an academic Canadian egghead like myself, sometimes when there's an election going on. Mm-hmm. But outside of that, hey. So, But I want to say that unless there's new breaking stuff, this story is already starting to fade if it hasn't already in the international media. Well, you know, the, an example... Sorry? I was going to say, you had mentioned earlier that the the liberal numbers are pretty well holding where they are, and, and you expected a bounce back. I was going to say, you, you expect the liberals can survive this going into the next election? Well, they're going to survive. They're not going to disappear. It's not an existential um, uh, issue for them. Uh, the issue, I, I'm not saying they're going to win, and it could very well be this isn't going to be the major issue in the election campaign, although the opposition parties will harp on it. But, you know, I think back, I, I think the conservatives are going to go right back to talking about immigration, which is also Maxime Bernier's uh, mm-hmm. main, main position. But I, I think back to the sponsorship scandal. People say, oh, well, the reason the liberals got defeated was because of the sponsorship scandal. Au contraire, au contraire. They won the 2004 election after we had the report from the Auditor General. They were reduced to minority. Okay, and then they lost in 2006 when Stephen Harper became Prime Minister. What was it because of the sponsorship scandal? Not at all. In fact, at the beginning of that campaign, it looked like they were going to win a majority. I know why they lost. They lost because at Christmas time, the chief commissioner of the RCMP, a fellow called Sacradelli, 
said, oh, we're investigating a budget leak and we're investigating people in the Minister of Finance's office. So that fed into the narrative, oh yeah, that the Liberals are corrupt. Now, as it turned out, uh, there wasn't any corruption among the Liberals. Some middle-level bureaucrat got got uh, uh, got prosecuted, but uh, it had really nothing to do with the political class. That's why the Liberals lost. So, and I think the sponsorship scandal uh, resonated even stronger than this because in this situation, a lot of people like myself are thinking, "Well, hold it, there are nine thousand jobs involved." What is the penalty going to be for SNC Lavalin? You can't put them in a cell. I, I heard mm-hmm. the conservatives saying, "Oh, you know, you're giving them a, a get out of jail free card." Well, hold it, they're not going to jail. No, they just won't be able to bid on federal federal contracts for ten years if they're convicted. Yes, yes, and I suspect they would be. Who knows? Mm-hmm. You know, you have these trials, but even there, that can be changed. In fact, last autumn, the government started to study. Uh, whether uh, the the regulation, uh, uh, they can change those regulations without even going to Parliament. But there's no doubt they'll get more negative publicity if they do that. I suspect they might still very well go for a deferred prosecution agreement. Nelson, uh, then they yeah. I was gonna I was gonna say Nelson. I want to thank you for joining us. Okay, thank you, Ed. Nelson Wiseman is professor of political science at the University of Toronto. The one thing Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has been able to maintain is his Sunny Ways brand, which helped propel him into the highest office in the country. But now the halo is tarnished by the whiff of political backroom shenanigans and the defending of a company facing charges for playing financial footsie with a brutal, ruthless dictator. To find out whether this is a body blow or the knockout punch in the polls, I'm pleased to be joined by Shachi Curl of the Angus Reid Institute. And, and Shachi, what erosion of support have you seen since this scandal came to light? Well, the truth is that the Liberals had been uh, slowly seeing their support, particularly on leadership, but also on party uh, appeal and vote intention, chip away quite a bit over the last two years. So if you if you try to cast your mind's eye to a time when SNC-Lavalin was not the only thing we were talking about in Canadian politics all the way back to last December, the Conservatives and the Liberals were in fairly competitive position. Uh, they were about neck and neck. Now we've seen, depending on which poll you're looking at, but there have been a number that are showing a very certain trend that the Conservative Party has opened up a lead over the Liberals, anywhere between, you know, three, six, nine points, again, depending on the, the particular poll. Our polling shows the Conservatives at a seven-point gap, a seven-point lead over the Liberals. What is notable, however, Ed, while we haven't necessarily seen um, that, that we haven't necessarily seen a corresponding uptick in preference for the other opposition leaders over. Justin Trudeau. So Justin Trudeau's own brand has taken a hit. And that's very dangerous for the Liberals because the Liberal brand is Justin Trudeau. He is the brand. And so the Liberals at this stage have to figure out a way to pivot and position their party less about the man 
and more about the mission and policy, which, of course, they haven't done in the last three years. But as I say, at the same time, it's not as though we're seeing numbers, uh, great numbers of people already uh, looking at Andrew Scheer and saying, well, uh, in the absence of, of, uh, of approval of Justin Trudeau, we're now going to shift our support to Scheer. That's not happening. From your perspective, are Canadians watching this or are they just shrugging their shoulders? Well, there's an element of both. Mm -hmm. So there is very, very high engagement and interest in this story, uh, far more than we've seen on other issues. That combined with the fact that it it has been the only thing that political reporters have really been talking about for the last four or five weeks, um, those those two things combine to certainly uh, create conditions in which even if you weren't interested in this issue, there's no getting away from it. So are they shrugging their shoulders? Some of them maybe, but that doesn't mean that um, they are going to forget about this. So at some point, the the minutia uh, of of the details around this scandal, the dates, the times, who said what to whom, starts to be more than people can absorb in their day-to-day lives, uh, especially at a time when they're, we're noticing in our polling, you know, high levels of economic uncertainty. People are worried about what their standard of living is going to be like in the year ahead, worried about losing a job or a loved one in the household losing a job. Those are housing affordability. Those are the, the issues that people sort of get up in the morning and worry about, not, not uh, what the Justice Committee voted on today. Um, so while there might be something of a tune-out factor, at the same time, the opposition, if they're doing their job at all, is not going to let the electorate forget about this, especially in an election year. Indeed, I think many of the attack ads have already been written and cut, and they will have a lot to do with the SNC scandal. So it's all about the power of suggestion. Even if you don't quite remember all the details of the scandal, voters will remember that something not quite right and something smelly occurred at the beginning of the year and it may have an impact on how they vote at the same time as i always say six seven months is a lifetime in canadian politics shachi curl of the angus reed institute joining us on the unpublished cafe as we discuss the snc lavalan scandal and the impact on the liberal brand and in particular prime minister trudeau now you had mentioned in your uh, polling numbers the uh, conservatives had opened up a seven-point lead i'm wondering in in that same study is the ndp gaining anything at this point the ndp has not managed to get much traction out of this um I would point out that the polling was done uh, before Jagmeet Singh took his seat in the Commons. In fact, that actually hasn't happened yet. That will be happening in in the days to come. So uh, we have not had a chance to see NDP leader Jagmeet Singh sort of uh, show his stuff, if you will, in uh, in the Commons, and and that may have. Uh, that in the best case scenario may have uh, a lifting, uh, an elevating impact for Singh and the NDP if he does a good job. The the fact is, however, that uh, to this point, and again, things can change, things always change, but today, for the most part, Jamit Singh is not seen 
by the Canadian electorate as a contender uh, in in a three-way race among the leaders of the three main parties. What do I mean by that? When we ask the question, uh, who would make best prime minister, notably the, the, the most common answer is none of the above or, or none of these leaders. But uh, Justin Trudeau and Andrew Scheer both garner about uh, a little more than a quarter of the of the of the views and uh, support of Canadians and their bases. So about 27, 28 percent say Trudeau, about the same number say Scheer. Uh, Jagmeet Singh uh, polls just one point ahead of Elizabeth May. He was at 7 percent. So uh, that says to me that uh, Singh has some catching up to do. And we will see what the latest rounds of numbers show in terms of best PM and whether or not Singh is able to to capitalize on these liberal problems. But so far, very clear that who is capitalizing? It is the conservatives, but only to a point. You know, I'm I'm wondering in this uh, whole issue, and in, in particular looking at, at your numbers, did you get a chance to look at how this is playing out in Quebec? Quebec continues to be sort of a, a, a almost turning into a, a five-way race. Uh, Quebec is very interesting because the collapse of the New Democrats in Quebec has opened up opportunities for the Liberals, which is why this issue is playing differently in Quebec, but not entirely differently. Scandal is scandal, although this is in part why we saw the Liberals pivot very, very hard to the jobs, jobs, jobs mantra around SNC. Why did we do all of this? We did this to protect jobs. Now, some people, uh, you know, with with more expertise than than I have in terms of uh, the construction file and, and legal uh, aspects of this case would say, well, that's a lot of bunk. But whether it's bunk or not, the pitch or the play for the liberals is to recast themselves, not as people who were trying to pressure uh, a very high profile female cabinet minister when you're supposed to be the feminist in chief, but someone who was trying to be the defender in chief for Canadian jobs. This is the message they're trying to connote particularly in Quebec. It has played a little bit differently in Quebec, but Quebec, you know, is a place where the Conservatives are trying to make gains now, where the Bloc may try to resurge, where the Green Party may be in play. Uh, There's all kinds of different factors and different permutations in Quebec, which makes it very much a province to watch in in the coming election. And let's face it, the Liberals and Trudeau are are counting on Quebec in the next election because they do plan on losing some votes out west and in Ontario. Well, uh, Ontario is going to be the bellwether, and as much as people outside of Ontario don't like that, it is it is the case. Um, Ontario, because of where it is uh, in terms of its provincial politics and where it has been in its federal politics, is very much up for grabs. And the big X factor, um, I think even further beyond SNC-Lavalin, will be do people in Ontario, particularly in those vote-rich suburbs, say, ah, actually, we like the direction the province is going in under uh, Doug Ford, and, and we want to see more conservative government? Or they might say, you know, we think we'd like to have a counterweight or a counterbalance to conservative government in Ontario, and we're going to stick with the Liberals. Uh, but Andrew Scheer has the potential to be very dangerous to the Liberals 
in Ontario. Uh, Eastern Canada, let's see what happens. I'm sure the Liberals uh, are planning to lose some seats there, given that they had a a sweep in the last election. Uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, largely, I would suspect, at this time and place, a write-off for the Liberals. But, you know, B.C., is also an interesting uh, uh, place and an interesting uh, region for the Liberals in this campaign. There will probably be some seats lost as a result of their decision to go ahead on pipelines, uh, on the TMX pipeline. But at the same time, uh, again, if they can hold their support in those really important suburban ridings, uh, they may not be as badly off as we might expect them to be. Chachi, I want to thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Chachi Curl is with the Angus Reid Institute. Now we want to hear from you about this. Is it ethical to offer a deferred prosecution agreement to companies such as SNC-Lavalin to avoid criminal prosecution? You can log on to unpublished.vote and have your say. I want to thank Jennifer Quaid from the University of Ottawa, Nelson Wiseman from the University of Toronto, and Shachi Curl from the Angus Reed Institute for joining us on the Unpublished Cafe. And I want to thank you for listening. I'm Ed Hand.